strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight I'm going to tell you a story about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Robin. What t-shirt am I wearing? You're wearing a Sherlock Holmes t-shirt. Yes, I am, because tonight I'm going to talk about the creator of Sherlock Holmes. But before I do that, I just want to remind you all to check out NotoriousNarratives.com, where you can find links to our iTunes as well as our Spotify. You can also find our link to our Shopify store there, Mm -hmm. where you can find all of our fun new merchandise as well as a link to our Patreon where you can get additional content, as well as some exclusive merchandise that is not available in the store. So I'm sure many of you have heard of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Truthfully, one of my favorite authors. My adolescence was shaped by him, Thomas Harris, who wrote Silence of the Lambs, and of course, Anne Rice. I mean, being a creepy goth girl in the 90s. Hello. So (laughs) um, it took me forever to figure out what a pip was. If you are a Sherlock Holmes fan, you will know what I'm talking about. And I still can't really 100% tell you that I actually know what a pip is. But I think it's the little seed inside of the middle of an orange. Maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, email me. Let's talk about it. While Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's characters have always enthralled me, I've always been mesmerized at how their minds work. I know very little about the man himself. That was until I ran across a set of articles and a book about the time he got involved in an actual police investigation. What? This story involves a famed author, stolen gems, and an international manhunt. So I guess we should start with who Arthur Conan Doyle is. While you all love a weird story, you may not know exactly who this guy is or why I think he's such a big deal. Arthur Conan Doyle was born in May of 1859 in Edinburgh, Scotland, to a British father and an Irish Catholic mother. Ooh. I mean, (laughs) the scandal. Anyway, he grew up in poverty due to his father's rampant alcoholism. But he was lucky enough to have some family members who were a bit better off and saw to it that he received a good education. He went on to receive his medical education at the University of Edinburgh Medical School. Good for you. Which is where Burke and Hare sold their anatomy specimens, he could have very well worked on one of those anatomy specimens. Worked on with a stolen... One of those murdered... One of the murdered cadavers that were sold. Yes. He also studied botany. Oh. It was during this time in his life that he began to write short stories, having a few of them published. He went on to be the doctor on numerous ships and received an additional degree specifically in the study of demyelination of the spinal cord which is like multiple sclerosis. Oh, I was like demelination. Yeah. So, I mean, this so is... So, it's the curvature of the spine or... or no, no, the- no. So, um, the spinal cord has a sheath on the outside that's created uh, for myelin. Yeah. As that sheath is destroyed, you lose the sensation in limbs and the ability to control them. Okay. So, That was what he was focused on. Disorder that causes the myelin sheath to breakdown is a demyelinating disorder um lou gehrig's disease Mm -hmm. there's i mean there's a few of them there's many of them so this is a smart guy yeah he began private practice as a physician but did not find success well my man is an excellent student he is not a great businessman so he went to vienna to study to become an ophthalmologist 
in case you don't know what an ophthalmologist is, that's the eye doctor. Yeah. But not like the eye doctor that just gives you the glasses. It's the eye doctor that's like, hey, like, what's going on inside your eyeball? It's, it's different like the, from the spine, my friend. Yeah. Different from the spine. So traveling through Europe for a time and returning to London, he decided to set up shop to become this ophthalmologist. Mm-hmm. But again, no patients came. Throughout his tumultuous medical career, he never stopped writing. He wrote both fiction and nonfiction. But in the course of three weeks in 1886, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle finished A Study in Scarlet, which would introduce the world to Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Sherlock exemplified the skills of deduction, inference, and observation. So I think I fangirled enough about I love it. I Sir love, Arthur Conan Doyle. I love Sherlock Holmes. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I have read the complete works of Sherlock Holmes probably <sighs> backwards and forwards. I will tell you about the one characteristic that this episode is focused on, and that is his drive to advocate for justice. In 1912, Conan Doyle published The Case of Oscar Slater, a plea for a full pardon for Slater. Oscar Slater, born in Germany to a Jewish family, moved to Edinburgh in 1901. In Glasgow, he claimed to be a gymnastics instructor. Yes. He also claimed to be a dentist. Oh, no. As okay. well. <laughs> he also claimed to be a dealer in precious stones. But what he was truly known for, especially by the police, was being a gangster, a pimp, and a man who was associated with thieves. And a pathical, pathological liar. I mean, not the best of dudes, right? Yeah. Like, just not the best of dudes. He really got himself into some shit. And between... His being Jewish in Scotland and his, you know, extracurricular affairs. repertoire. He would find himself with a target on his back and he became the prime suspect in a grisly murder. Oh. Just before Christmas on December 21st, 1908 in Glasgow, a woman named Helen Lambie steps out to get a paper. She is the sole servant of the elderly Miss Marion Gilchrist. Below Miss Gilchrist's apartment lived Arthur Adams. On that day, he said that he and his sisters heard three knocks on the ceiling. These knocks led the neighbors to believe that Miss Gilchrist wanted assistance. And being a decent neighbor and a pretty much decent dude, Adams went upstairs to investigate. Upon his arrival, he rang the bell, but did not receive a response, though he could hear noises inside the apartment. Adams returned to his apartment, told his sisters what was going on. But all this did was worry them more, and they begged him to go back upstairs and check on her one more time. He returned upstairs and was standing in front of the door when Helen Lambie returned from her errand. At about this time, they glimpsed a man in the building's hallway. However, it didn't strike them as particularly unusual as it's an apartment building. People come and go. Could be a tenant, could be a visitor. But regardless, Adams told Helen what had been going on, and together they entered the apartment. To their horror, they discovered that Miss Gilchrist had been bludgeoned to death. Her personal papers had been rifled through, and a diamond brooch was stolen. Though Gilchrist kept an equivalent of nearly half a million dollars worth of jewelry hidden throughout her flat, nothing had been taken, at least her maid had said, that nothing was missing except for this one singular brooch. That she was wearing. And this brooch, I don't know if she was wearing it, but this one singular brooch that was shaped like a crescent moon set along its edge in diamonds. So it's like a moon-shaped brooch, and it has one row of diamonds. There was a public outcry against this brutal murder. 
The police and the public wanted the crime to be solved as quickly as possible and to get the murderer behind bars swiftly. Within five days, the police announced that they were looking for a suspect. His name, Oscar Slater. At first glance, seemed perfect. Slater lived in the neighborhood, was known by police to be a pretty shady dude, and even more perfectly, he had recently pawned a diamond brooch. A crescent moon a diamond brooch? Glasgow authorities followed Slater by ship to New York, where he had sailed on a long-planned trip. A voyage that they argued was an indication of his flight from his crime. He was extradited to Scotland and convicted in a trial that depended crucially on witness tampering, suborned perjury, and suppression of exculpatory evidence. Exculpatory. That's a good word. So the damning evidence against him clearly is that he left the country. Not only did he leave the country, but when he left the country, he left under an assumed name. When he was discovered in America, he was made aware of the accusations against him. He was positive that upon his return... He would be able to prove his innocence. Oh, my God. Did what? He, is he now the Oscar Wilde Wiener guy? No. Okay. <laughs> it was found that the brooch that he pawned did not match the description good. of this girl, Chris Brooch. Good, good. He also had witnesses who could testify as to his location at the time in question. But the police were not swayed by Slater's evidence. They were just sure that he was the culprit. No evidence. His brooch doesn't match anything. Well, actually, he tried mm-hmm. to pawn it off, so he doesn't. He he no longer had it in his. So possession. here's the thing. He also he did not, but he did offer the uh, the place where he pawned it. Did and they place... went and they found that it had three rows of diamonds. Yeah. So, so it was not the same brooch. Were they able to? describe the person that came to pawn it well there was a ticket oh he had a pawn ticket there you go he had a pawn ticket for a diamond brooch so they use that as the evidence like well he has this pawn ticket for this diamond brooch but even though they go to the pawn store or whatever Mm -hmm. place this is and they find out that the brooch that was pawned is not the same brooch doesn't matter they have their guy it's irrelevant he's a lowlife He's Jewish in Scotland. He has a similar brooch. He and now lives he's in the area. the country. He fled the country. Yeah. They don't care if he's actually innocent or guilty. They just want it to be done with. A rich old lady died. They're done with it. Like, they just want the case closed. Poor Oscar. I mean, at this point, it's like wrong person, wrong time, wrong place, wrong time, whatever it is. You yeah, know, I mean, like he's like, he's the convenient other. Yeah. Right? He's... The person that they can point their finger at, regardless of evidence. Too much of a coincidence. Way too much. Like, also, who knows if the brooch that was stolen was actually even pawned to begin with? Maybe he just pawned something that belonged to his mom, which was similar. And so the the other guy who stole the brooch is out living among the city. Well, so the other thing is that another thing that he is known for doing is running a gambling house. There you go. So clearly, yeah, you're playing, you're playing poker. You have a full. You're down a bit. Here's my brooch. brooch. So the police used Slater's criminal history, and they also had a number of witnesses. After some coaching by authorities, these people, including Helen Lambie, who was the servant, there's always a Helen. Were (laughs) they were sure that they had seen Slater leaving the scene of the murder? Also, the police believed that they found the murder weapon. 
when they found a small hammer in Slater's possession. The trial was held in 1909. Despite the conflicting evidence, Oscar Slater was found guilty of the murder of Marion Gilchrist and immediately sentenced to death. Slater's lawyers started a petition and urged for mercy. Two days before he was due to be hanged, Slater's sentence was changed to imprisonment with hard labor for life. Slater's lawyers also contacted Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. While Conan Doyle didn't approve of Slater or his lifestyle, it was clear that he was not the murderer of Marion Gilchrist. And in 1912, Conan Doyle published The Case of Oscar Slater. It examined the evidence that was brought forward at the trial and point by point proved that Slater was not the killer. For example, it explained that Slater traveled under an assumed name to the United States because he was traveling with his mistress. He was not trying to avoid detection by police, but rather avoid detection by his wife. (laughs) And while it was true that Slater did possess a small hammer, it wasn't large enough to have inflicted the type of wounds that Miss Gilchrist had sustained. Conan Doyle stated that a medical examiner at the crime scene declared that a large chair dripping with blood seemed to be the murder weapon. A chair versus a hammer. Subtle differences And I there. love how they specify a small hammer. So if you if you look this man up, Oscar Slater, you can actually see the hammer on Wikipedia. It's like, what? It's like one of those little like multi-tool kind of thing? It's just probably like a seven-inch hammer. It's like a little one. Like a little boop boop huh. in your house. I mean, that could do some damage hitting at the <laughs> right spot. But if not then it gives people an opportunity to fight back. Well, it's more, not something, More you know? importantly, she's 83 years old, right? So she's a little bit on the old side. And there's a chair dripping with blood in the house. I don't care. Just throw something at him. So probably the chair. It was also concluded that Miss Goldcrest had opened the door to the murderer herself. So she knew him. Which surmised that she must have known the assailant. Despite the fact that Miss Goldcrest and Oscar Slater lived in the same neighborhood... They had never met. The case of Oscar Slater caused some demand for a new trial. However, the authorities said the evidence didn't justify that the case be reopened. In 1914, there were more calls for a retrial. New evidence had come to light. Another witness was found that could verify Slater's whereabouts during the time of the crime. Although it was learned that Helen Lambie named Slater as the man she'd seen in the hallway the day of the murder... She had given police a different name entirely. Unbelievably, the officials decided to just let the matter rest. Conan Doyle was outraged. Throughout the years, Conan Doyle raised the issue of the injustice against Oscar Slater. He was not successful in his efforts. Slater's prison correspondence had been rigorously monitored, and every letter that he sent and received in prison is now on file at the National Records of Scotland in Edinburgh. Some of these letters are raw and painful and deeply moving. The letters are a treasure trove of information about who he really was. They also spoke of his relationship with his adoring family in Germany. A letter from his mother said, Don't lose courage in a sin of my heart. The sun will yet bring all the light of the day. The warmest kisses from your mother who loves you till her last breath. And the ones written by Slater himself saying, You have no conception, dearest parents, without wishing to complain to you how unhappy I often feel, and how often I wish I was out of this world, if it were not for the thought of still possessing you in the outer world. 
So, I mean, this is a man who seems like he's pretty close to suicide. Yeah. He's incredibly depressed. He's writing to his family, basically being like, if I didn't think it was going to hurt you so bad, I would end my yeah. life. I mean, if you weren't here, I would have, I would end my life. This right. way we can meet. Yeah. In 1925, William Gordon was released from Peterhead Prison in Scotland. Unbeknownst to the authorities, Gordon smuggled out a message from a fellow prisoner, Oscar Slater. The message written on waterproof paper, was hidden under Gordon's tongue, and it was a plea for help. It was to be delivered to none other than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This message from Oscar Slater didn't offer any new revelations. There was no new evidence. It was just a note from a desperate man who wanted justice. He begged Conan Doyle not to forget him and to try one more time for his freedom. Conan Doyle could not ignore Slater's request. He fired off a fresh barrage of letters. He wrote to all of his influential friends, the press and the Secretary of State of Scotland. He made public appearances and began to gather other like-minded people to the cause. And the movement slowly began to gather steam. The turning point was in 1927, when a book was published by Glasgow journalist William Park. It was called The Truth About Oscar Slater and it re-examined the case against him. Park came to the same conclusion that Conan Doyle had years earlier, that Miss Girlcrest had likely known her murderer and had invited him into her home. Park speculated that Miss Girlcrest had argued with this person about a document that she possessed. During the argument, she was pushed and hit her head. Her assailant was forced to make a decision. What would be worse, to have Marion Gilcrest recover from her wounds and he be charged? Or should he just kill her? He chose to kill her. Though libel laws prevented Park from naming the person who he believed it was, he believed that it was the victim's nephew. Newspapers were full of information about the case. Witnesses came forth to talk about how the police coached them into naming Slater as the man that they had seen in the building that fateful day. On November 8, 1927, the Secretary of State of Scotland issued the following statement. Oscar Slater has now completed more than 18 and a half years of his life sentence, and I have felt justified in deciding to authorize his release on license as soon as suitable arrangements can be made. Within a few days, Oscar Slater was a free man. Sadly, the case was not totally a happy ending as far as Conan Doyle was concerned. Slater was released not pardoned. As a result, the case had to be reopened and retried. At that point, Slater could apply for compensation from the government for the years of wrongful imprisonment. Conan Doyle and others gave money to Slater for legal fees. In the end, Slater was cleared of all charges and awarded £6,000 in compensation. Conan Doyle assumed that Slater would reimburse him and the supporters for their legal fees. After all, it was what he would have done. But Slater felt differently about the matter. He thought that it was ridiculous that he had to pay any court costs at all. And he refused to pay them back. It wasn't like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle needed the money. But it just bothered him. It felt like he was very ungrateful mm -hmm. for the things that he had done for him. And he felt like it was a very dishonorable way to treat those who had come to support him in his time of need. He and would have ended everything in a wasted away. Yeah, he would have wasted away in a prison had it not been for this group of people, and he wouldn't give back one sixth of the money that he was given. 
Conan Doyle wrote to Slater saying, You seem to have taken leave of your senses. If you are indeed responsible for your actions, then you are most ungrateful and, as well, the most foolish person I have ever met. Had Conan Doyle been alive in 1948, he probably would have disagreed with the newspaper notice about Oscar Slater's death. Here lies Oscar Slater, dead at 78, reprieved murderer and friend of Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, no. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, so he worked so hard to get him out of prison, but in the end, this guy was just kind of like a scumbag. Like, he was just never going to be, there's, you know, like, yes, he didn't kill this person, but he had gone to jail for assaults before. He wasn't. God, do you think that you think that's on purpose? On how like they wrote his like last like. No, because I'm sure that he Sir told Arthur Conan stories. Do- he was just like. Yeah, I'm sure he was oh. always like, you know, who got me out of prison? Yeah. You know, the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, he's my friend. Because he seems like he was like a big talker, like. You know, just a name caller, a name dropper, right? Name dropper. A name dropper. Just not the best of dudes. So I guess sometimes the good deed itself just has to be payment enough. That is the story of how the man who created Sherlock Holmes helped to get justice for a wrongfully accused man. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring. <laughs>